You're listening to On Human Rights, brought to you from the Rao Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. My name is Gabriel Stein. Thanks for joining us today. This podcast features Margrethe Vestager. She is the European Commissioner for Competition. Since taking that position, she has taken action against Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and others. Here she is delivering the 14th annual Anna Lynn Lecture in Lund, it's titled Democracy and Power in a Brave New World, Economy, Technology, and Human Rights. Enjoy. Well, now I should not speak because I can only disappoint you. No, it is... Uh, I just need to be able to see you now that you can see me better. Thank you. It is indeed an honor. I remember that day when Anna Lind was attacked, when she was killed. And the effort of her memory is so impressive because that allows us not to remember that she was killed but that she lived, and that she set an amazing example for all of us, because she was a visionary, but she was also in everyday life, because she came over as a caring, a politician that wanted a society for citizens, for humans. So it's a great honor to join you here at Lund University at the invitation of the Raoul Vandenberg Institute. Let me take you back to 1962, long before the majority of you were even born. There was a young law graduate who arrived exactly here in Lund. The topic of her studies, civil procedures in Sweden, wasn't sort of a likely topic to change the world. I'm sorry if I insult anyone here. But the thing is that what Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Ginsburg saw here in Sweden, that inspired her. And on that inspiration she served to change the life of millions of women in particular. Because it is told that it was the experiences here in Sweden that first made this brilliant and thoughtful woman only the second woman ever to serve in the US Supreme Court to start thinking seriously about gender equality. When she got into Howard, she was invited to dinner by the dean of the law school, along with the eight other women in the class of 500. And he invited them to dinner in order to ask them, each and every one of them individually, how they could justify taking a spot from a qualified man. Here in Sweden, she found something different she found that one in four of law students were women. 
And women were not only students, they were also judges. And more than 50 years later, she vividly remembers a, attending a class where the judge was eight months pregnant. What Judge Ginsburg found here in Sweden was a society where women could tell their own stories and not have their stories written for them. From the day they were born by law school deans trying to fight off the threat to their power. And this, in the end, is what our values stand for. This is why we stand up for freedom, for fairness, for equality. Because of all the young people, men as well as women, women who never had the chance to escape the roles that their gender or ethnicity or poverty chained them to. And because that the joy and fulfillment of your life, well, that finally comes down to being able to make choices. Since 62, we have made progress. We have definitely come a very long way to make our societies both fairer and more equal. We really worked hard. And the thing is, sometimes we tend to forget that from the very destroyed, not only physically, but also spiritually destroyed Europe, we have built the best place to live in history ever, especially if you're a woman. That doesn't mean that everything is fine. And that doesn't mean that everyone is well off. But we should never, ever be timid or non-assertive about what we have achieved. Because the growth of freedom and equality, well, that owes to the dedication of generation after generation of Europeans who on a daily basis have pushed things in order to allow for choice, for freedom, for self-awareness. One more thing, though. Technology has also helped. It has helped us to make choices, to make choices in our own life path. The internet has allowed people who would otherwise be trapped in their homes because of age or poor health to turn a maybe lonely and sheltered existence into something that would still enjoy friendship and experience. And it can help people whose ambitions or interest or sexuality leave a feeling of being isolated, being able to join a community, being part of something else. And maybe to find the courage to step out of stereotypes and be who you really are. And obviously the internet also helps new voices to be heard not just the voices of the powerful, but the contributions of people who might not have had anything to say if it weren't for the internet. Take the Me Too movement. 
It may have begun with an article in the New York Times, but it was the internet that made it impossible to silence. For once, uh, long overdue, it changed because all of a sudden the world believed the woman and not the harasser. And that is the beginning of change. And it shouldn't be underestimated what it means when you start to believe in the one who is in the weaker position instead of the one in power. And in so many other ways as well. The internet has allowed us to do things in a way we could never do it before. It allowed us to learn when we cannot afford books, to study online, even though we cannot afford the tuition to the world's greatest universities or wouldn't be allowed in. Including, of course, that we are now our own travel agents, our own newspapers, our own controllers of our own TV channels. It has given us, in short, much more control. But when you then look at our societies and our politics today, you don't see a confident world where people have more opportunities than ever. You see something else. Instead, you see anxiety and fears sweeping away all certainties and traditional parties and even threatening the very values that we built European nations and the European Union on. And maybe this is because the European voters have seen more clearly and quicker than some of our leaders that the very same changes that opens all of this opportunity, well, it contains also the seeds of a much darker future. A future not of freedom, but of constraint. Not of opportunities for everyone, but of powerful interests controlling even more of our lives. There's never been a time in our history when political debates have been as open and as free as they are now. In this age of social media, politics, well, that is not only something that we take part in during election times. Today, all of us can be part of the conversation all the time. After all, that's what democracy is supposed to be about. But the troublesome thing is that this ideal of open debate where every voice counts as much as the next one. That doesn't reflect what happens in reality. When you bring out a picnic on a warm summer's day, it doesn't take long before the wasps are swimming around you. And in the same way, an environment that's open and unfiltered very quickly gets the attention of power. And we have all seen the harm that it can do when powerful interests take over those of debates. We've seen how lies that spread online can tip an election, or sow doubts about 
how we can tackle climate change, or even cost lives when they support outright lies about vaccination so that children are left vulnerable to disease. And the really striking thing is that it's so difficult to see who's behind this sort of disinformation. Because what might at first glance look like a glass, grassroots organization, well, it can turn out to be nothing but the front of very powerful interests. And these days, there are signs of a gathering challenge to human rights, not just from countries very far from our own borders, but also here within Europe. But it's important to take that threat for what it is. I don't think that this is simply a spontaneous uprising, a certain loss of confidence by people in Europe in the very rights and the values that keeps us safe and free. One recent study, it kept human rights as the absolute second, only won over by the value of peace. So there's no sign that Europeans have given up the belief and the willingness to fulfill our promise of human rights. What's really happening seems to be that powerful interests hiding behind anonymity are driving campaigns to strip us as Europeans of your rights. As I see it, that includes interests outside of EU who see our strength, who see our community, who see our willingness to come together as a threat to their own power, and who understand quite rightly that the values that we share, the key to the fact that we are united in diversity. But that also includes those within the European Union who see their power challenged by the rights of others, by the equality that means they have to compete fair and square, and the rule of law that gives people the opportunity to stand up for their own right. And sometimes the digital world can undermine fairness and entrench power, maybe even without real intent. A famous study by Nature almost 15 years ago, it showed that if you compare the Encyclopedia Britannica with Wikipedia, well, Wikipedia is almost as good a source for information. That also shows that the internet doesn't only offer freedom, it can also help us better understand the world around us by learning from the wisdom of crowds when we come together and share our knowledge. And that can be a very good way to capture conventional wisdom. But the thing is that conventional wisdom is also filled with the assumption of power. If you take the Danish 
version of Wikipedia as one example, you would find articles about nearly 60,000 60, men and only 12,000 women. That clearly has to change. And so, a few days ago, to work on International Women's Day, with the support of Wikipedia itself, about 100 people came together in Copenhagen in order to start change that fact, to write the biographies that we're still missing. And that is quite easy on Wikipedia. Everyone can edit. But there are times where it's not so easy to see what is correct. It can be difficult to see what are the biases that shape the world around us. And that is exactly what is the matter with artificial intelligence. It can help us, yes, of course, we see that already, to make better decisions, faster decisions, more informed decisions, by finding a pattern in data that me, we may not have the time as humans to see ourselves, or that we may overlook. But the problem is, of course, that the results are only as reliable as the data that goes into it. And as much as we may believe in fairness and equality, the world we live in and the data that describes it, it's marked by power. One, uh, one study has shown that artificial uh, intelligence designed to understand the language can learn the biases in the way our world works. Learning, for instance, to associate women with the home and men with math and engineering. That is not the logic, logical outcome. That is just the biased outcome depending on the data who feeds the artificial intelligence. And that is exactly the problem. Because we're taught to think that the computer is reliable, because it's logical. It cannot be tampered with, because it is not emotional. Well, I think that would be even worse, <laughs> to have the emotional uh, algorithm. But that being said, it's not any better than our prejudice. It's not any better than what we feed it with. And the fact is that the openness and the freedom of the digital world, well, it can be an invitation for those in power actually just to increase it at the expense of the rest of us. More than a century ago, Prussia and uh, Austria-Hungary they signed a treaty about taxation. They decided that they would only tax businesses that had a physical presence, a fixed place of business in that country. That was very elegant, because in those days, it seemed obvious that you can only do business if you have a physical presence. Well, what was obvious back then not so obvious these days. Because now it is obvious that you can do quite a lot of business 
with data that flows from one country to another without ever really setting foot in that country. You can make a lot of money without having any thought of physical presence, let alone a taxable presence. So, companies that serve million, millions of Europeans, who interact with Europeans, who create value in that interaction, they pay very little, if any taxes at all. And as every business becomes increasingly digital, well, if we continue this path, it will be a disaster. Because state coffers, they would empty, and they need the resources that indeed also allows these businesses to do their businesses. Resources for education, for health, for infrastructure, for all the things that make our societies work. It is only fair that every business, digital or traditional, pays their fair share of taxes when creating value doing business in the European Union. Of course, the best thing is to have a global solution. And this is why we, of course, support all the work done within the OECD. The timetable is that the OECD is to table uh, proposals and results of their considerations for the G7 uh, the in the G20 ministers uh, in June. But it would be even better if we could agree in Europe that we together would make the push forward to update our understanding of corporate taxation to understand what a digital world is. It is everything. It is every part of our world. It's a very long time ago that the oldest trade on earth were having a digital site. And now also farming. Everything has a data site to it. So, maybe it's about time that we have a second look at the rules that governs what we want to make of ourselves. So that we can strike a right balance between the needs of different parts of our society. In a few days, I do hope that the European Parliament will vote for an update of our European copyright laws. I don't know how many of you who goes to YouTube for the advertising. My guess would be quite few. My guess would be that you go there for the songs and the films and the satire and the tutorials. You know, to update your makeup routine when you're past 50. <laughs> A lot of very useful stuff there. But it would be even better if the journalists and the singer and the writer and the film instructor got remunerated for the work they do that make us come there. And not just remunerating the advertiser and those who sell the advertising. Well, here, we're trying to find a balance to make sure that we don't tip the scale in favor of those who provide the platform. I don't have the answers to all the questions that we rightly ask ourselves when everything in our society digitalizes. Not only the market, also our governments, 
and of course, as you all know, in particular, our human relations. But I don't think, no, I do think, that we have to figure out how to regulate it. Because this is not just about finding the least disruptive solution. This is about dealing with the human rights of Europeans. It's not something that we should take lightly. It is something that we should take as a very fundamental challenge. So, digital businesses, they need, of course, to see that privacy is not just another hoop that they should get through in order to do more business. That privacy is an essential for freedom that we have something on our own. Because the most vital guarantees for freedom is the principle that we have a right to private life. That it's nobody's business, literally, in this case. And for this right to mean anything, we need to be able to choose who we invite into our private space, who we let into our home, and who to keep out. And also who gets to see our private information and what it can be used for. And here it's very useful to try to understand that, how it would work in a physical world. No matter how much you love your mother, you don't want her to see everything. I think business should understand this as a fundamental it's vital that they realize that privacy is not just another box to tick. It's more than a problem that, has to, that, that will go away if they bury us under privacy policies. Anyone reading terms and conditions before you tick the box? Well, there must be some PhD student here. <laughs> no? No, I'm just so. It's only I who are the crazy person because it feels like nothing but exercising rights. And that is, of course, what we want. We want to be able to exercise rights. And as the digital transformation of our world moves more and more of our lives into the control of certain companies, our democracies will also need to find ways to make sure that they can step in, protect people's interests. In ancient Athens, democracy meant that those people who were recognized as citizens, they could come together and participate in a single debate. And today, for the first time in modern age, the Internet again makes it possible to do exactly that in a single virtual space that we all share. But that space is very different from the meeting space in Athens. That Asian space was a public space. Its equivalent in modern time is privately owned. And this shift from private, from public to private is not necessarily a problem. Just because the social media is privately owned, that doesn't mean that anything goes. 
but in a very complex digital world. Well, I think it is important that we understand enough about how this system works to be able to keep them under democratic control. Can be quite difficult, for instance, to know who's paying for ads on a social media network and how a company that runs it chooses which posts to make visible and which to remove. Do you know why you see what you see? No. And if digital age means that we rely more and more on private businesses to carry out the most fundamental tasks in our society, then we'll need a completely new approach to transparency. We'll need to be able to trust that digital business that they are open with us about how their services work so that we can do our job and make sure that people's rights are protected. And just to conclude, this freedom given by the internet, this is a true, truly great achievement of our times. It's non-precedented, it's unbelievable still. But the idea of a totally free and equal internet where power is irrelevant is nothing but a very dangerous myth. The truth is, of course, that power is an unavoidable part of human life. You can try to limit the harm that it can do to us as individuals by bringing it under democratic control. But you can't wish it away. Power is here. And if you pretend that it isn't here, well, then you leave yourself open to manipulation because you don't see it. You make power entrenching itself so deeply that you may never, ever be able to find back equality. And so the first thing that we need to do is to, to protect our freedom is to be honest with ourselves, not with anyone else. To understand that freedom without democratic control contains the, the seeds of its own destruction. And to preserve that digital world where we are free to make our own choices the first choice we need to make is never, ever to compromise on our digital human rights. Thank you. That was Margrethe Vestager, the European Commissioner for Competition, speaking in Loon, Sweden, at the 14th annual Anna Lynn Lecture. Thanks for listening to On Human Rights.